G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing. We're really grateful for you to take the time and download and listen to this podcast, um, and we don't really ask anything for, for this in, in return. Well, well, I, I could say maybe something. What we'd really, really appreciate is if you could just go to iTunes and uh, and leave us a, a, a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be excellent. It helps with metrics and things that I don't I don't really understand, but it, but it pushes us up a tree, um, and it makes it easier for for people um to actually actually find us and and start start listening to uh to this podcast so that'd be that'd be really really good if you could um if you could just spend a couple of minutes of your time to go to itunes and leave us a review so uh last week we we spoke to charlotte dawson who's one of our ophthalmological lecturers here at the at the rvc about a general uh, um ocular exam I thought, like it's it's good to ask about specific things but we thought we'd just just cover the basics because because even even I uh, even I that sounds a bit conceited doesn't it I learned a, a lot listening to that and and at least uh, um, I had some redemption about maybe the things I, I thought I might have been doing incorrectly um, maybe I was doing an okay job but uh, but I do I do forget about certain things so so thank you Charlotte for, for coming back and uh, agreeing to uh, to talk to me again so so what we were going to do this time so we've spoken about the ophthalmological exam and I think it's great if people want to, to go back and, and listen to that but we'll try and and look at uh, five things um, today that probably quite common occurrences, I, I believe, in, in people uh, um, bringing their, their animals in for ophthalmological investigation. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe the, the the first one um, we, we could we could just talk about would be corneal ulceration. Yeah, they're scary, aren't they? Um, so they're a really common um, emergency referral for us, um, certainly here. at at the college um and i guess they're quite a challenge because they're it's a really broad category of diseases so we tend to call them ulcerative keratitises um and we categorize them in a few different ways and it's really frustrating because everyone always says to you oh if it's not healing then you just need to look for the underlying cause um and that can be really really challenging so um it's kind of um, slightly more obvious if you have a big defect in the cornea that you can see from across the room, you kind of know that that's going to need some form of emergency surgery or a desmetaseal like we talked about last week. Um, then we know if you've got that significant um, finding with your fluorescent test with the donut shape, um, then they're, they're kind of obvious and, and you're like, okay, I know I need to refer this patient. But what about those ones that are superficial and are lingering for a few months and you're like, oh, I'm not really sure I know what to do with those. Um, they can be a real challenge. So when we talked about our ophthalmic exam, we talked about making sure that we looked at each part of the eye. So if we start from outside, we can have hairs rubbing on the eye, um, entropion, for example, um, all of those things. So you need to make sure that you've resolved any eyelid abnormalities that could potentially be stopping the ulcer from healing. Um, then we fall into the category of something called a SKEDS, um, which, Skeds. <laughs> yeah, which is um, a spontaneous chronic corneal epithelial defect so it doesn't really help you in any way shape or form that acronym but they're what used to be called the boxer ulcer or the indolent ulcer um and they are the only type of ulcer that should be debrided you should never debride anything that's not a skeds so a skeds is um a non-healing ulcer 
that is only ever superficial. So you never see a defect in the cornea from a distance. Um, and it's one of those ones that linger, linger on. And usually you'll see it um, on a Saturday morning clinic. Um, the owner comes in is really frustrated because they've been coming every few days and the antibiotics been changed a hundred times and um, we still not got resolution of the ulcer. Well, that's because a very specific um, thing happens. And if you could tell us why it happens, Dom, you'd be a very rich man. But um, unfortunately, we don't know why this happens. But we have um, a hyaline acellular zone that forms. And this hyaline acellular zone is a, it, um, acts as a barrier between the stroma and the epithelium. And it stops the epithelium from sticking down. Um, and that's why it needs to be debrided, because you need to debride that membrane away in order for the epithelium to then stick to the underlying stroma. And there are various ways which you could do that. You could use a dry cotton bud debridement, a grid keratotomy, although I don't really like that term because keratotomy means you're going into something and that would be like penetrating the eye, uh, which sounds a bit scary. So, you know, a, a grid scrape, if you like. Um, and here we use a diamond burr, um, which many people now have in practice, which is fab. Um, and I guess... Um, ultimately you could just remove that area of the cornea with a superficial keratectomy but the key is that changing the antibiotic in that situation isn't going to help you um that you actually need to debride it and they can be really annoying um to to get rid of <laughs> um, and owner compliance can be a real challenge with them as well because um, the owner gets frustrated so when you when you do a whatever keratotomy or grid yep. or, or or debriding with a with a with a, a cotton bud would you would you treat them with anything or, or lubricate them afterwards? Yep. So I just use. So if we think about the flora of the conjunctiva and the cornea, just like regular skin or respiratory tract, it's just um, usually cocci. Um, you know your staphs and streps. Um, so something as um, that that's really good at those is broad spectrum and is not one of the big guns would be fusidic acid so i would use that um to cover a non-complicated ulcer um so a sked falls into a non-complicated ulcer a complicated ulcer is one that is infected um and is complicated so it has infiltrate is melting um all of those sorts of things and they're the ones where you might want to take a cytology which can be really helpful um, and that's how I tend to approach my antibiotic choice in corneal ulcers. If it's uncomplicated, not infected, not infiltrated, not melting, then I'd reach for fecidic acid. If it is um, then one of those things, so complicated, I would take a cytology sample. And and here we tend to use a cyto brush, um, which um, you just gently very gently um, roll across the area that you want to sample on the cornea after you've numbed it and then pop it on a slide stain it with diff quick because you know what you're looking at with diff quick um, you know what a red blood cell looks like a neutrophil looks like um, you know what bacteria look like um, go ahead and, and take a look um, most oh, sorry, so, sorry when you so when you when you put that on a slide and you have a look with diff quick are you are you looking for intracellular bacteria mm -hmm. as as your causative organism so yeah. if they're cocci that might lead you to fusothalmic acid so if it's complicated i want something with better corneal penetration okay. so at that point i would if it's so if it's complicated i'm already gonna not use fusidic acid okay. um so if it's cocci then i would be using chlorophenicol 
if we start to see rods, um, and even if we don't see rods intracellularly, but we see them on the slide, I would totally pick up um, the exosin or the um, ciprofloxacin, so ofloxacin or ciprofloxacin, um, because they're better for pseudomonas and, and rod bacteria. Now, I, ne- I never did this in, in practice because I think I used to just grab chloramphenicol um, as, as my, my first line. And, and I think I was indoctrinated with fear of fluoroquinolones and, and uh-huh. still am, to, to be perfectly uh-huh. honest. But indoctrinated with that, that I, I'd, I'd never um, put fluoroquinolones in an eye. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I, I think that I, I used to love, well, not love, but I'd, I'd uh, do a lot of um, ear cytology. Uh-huh. And, and, I, yeah, and I would absolutely. have thought that using a cider brush, it sounds like a really good thing to to do because then you're actually looking at seeing seeing what's there and you're making a sensible choice then and not reaching for a big gun when it's not necessary so there any contraindications to using a a cider brush or have you seen issues with with people using using no generally speaking if you're very gentle and the patient's collaborative and you've numbed the surface of the eye it's tolerated really well and cited brushes usually around a pound each so it can be quite expensive and so what I know some of our general practitioners around here do um, is they buy the little dental flossing brushes um, because you can get maybe 30 of them for a few pounds and then they sterilize them separately and use those as an alternative because it's cheaper then than than buying a, a proper cider brush so those tps that you go yeah. the into oh, okay yeah. so it's a, it, it's a similar similar thing it's, it's really not, similar m- not more abrasive um no it's not more abrasive if, if anything you'll get less cells than the cyto brush just because it's smaller and and slightly less rigid um some of them but that's a really nice compromise the other thing you can do is to use a sterile q-tip like you would do in ear cytology the problem is is you don't get a lot of yield so you Yes, you can use that, but you might not preserve the cells well or, or pick up enough uh, uh, information from that. But that would be the safest thing to use if you didn't have a cyto brush or, or the dental flossing brush. I, I, I want to get back out there and have a look at these. This is uh, like, a, like a fun thing to do because I, I love it when you can actually look at things under a, under a microscope mm-hmm. because it gives you a bit more bit more kudos doesn't it and you have a, a general feeling and a general feel about how how things are going to go and, and you're right if you see rods i mean like with ears I always thought like pseudomonas uh-huh. holy moly we're going to have an issue here yep. or we need to be really really on board and so. the other thing is that um fluoroquinolones can really delay corneal healing um, because they're a bit epitheliotoxic and so you only really want to use them when you truly need them not only because they're a big gun and we're preserving antibiotic use but also because it's going to delay the healing of your ulcer if you're um, using them inappropriately now fluoroquinolones in the eye although maybe we're a bit off topic here i know i know that uh, you know we talk about antibiotics being time dependent or concentration dependent but you can actually give fluoroquinolate like they have more of an effect if you give them more often is that, uh-huh. is, that is that right yeah so, it's it's similar uh, topical the pharmacokinetics are very similar topically yeah, yeah okay um and when, when would you think about using using serum uh mm-hmm. eye drops or, 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 or what why should you use uh, serum eye drops um so serum eye drops and also um doxycycline orally um are anticollagenases so the cornea is mainly collagen certainly the stroma um, and when we get a complicated ulcer and corneal melting or malacia, um, then this is 
coll- I can never say this word very well, but collagenolysis. Um, so you need an anti-collagenase to combat that and to stop or halt the melting process. Um, and so that's when I would re- reach for um, serum and or doxycycline orally. Not The doxycycline orally is not for the antibiotic use, but for the anti-collagenase effect um, when, expre- when expressed in the tear film. Okay, is it, so is it better to use serum for for that because there's less issues with actually generating any antibiotic resistance yeah absolutely and you're giving it topically immediately there you can give it frequently um so i I reserve doxycycline for um patients with very severe melts that i'm trying to throw everything at um so yeah generally speaking i would go for serum first okay that's that's uh that's great um is is there anything else you think we need to need to cover in uh, corneal ulceration? I don't think so. Just um, thinking about pain relief, so systemic um, anti-inflammatories if the dog or cat is is allowed to have them. Um, giving topical uh, proximetacaine or tetracaine is not a great idea um, because it causes drying of the cornea, um, which obviously you don't want if you are, have an ulcer. You need as many tears as possible. Um, in order to bring the nourishment and and um, remove the waste products to the cornea, but also um, it's epitheliotoxic again, so it will delay healing. So um, they're not. We don't really consider those as a treatment. They're just for the purpose of investigation, um, but they wouldn't be an ongoing pain relief for that patient. That, that's a good tip because I I, I would have uh, I would have thought that it'd be nice to make them pain free. I, I I would have, I would have thought you would say actually it maybe makes them keep their eye open or mm. decreases the tear production. But actually that's it's a very very good point. You don't want to don't want to put something in that they might might be with all good intentions. Yeah, actually slows things down. Yeah, not, yeah. not necessarily so good. Um, I think uh, I think I think that's that that's great. So uh, so maybe we'll, we'll move on to uh, something that I really haven't uh, haven't ever done really in in, in practice would be about uh, flushing laser lacrimal ducts or oh why, yeah why would why would anyone want to want to do that <laughs> so uh, so uh, you know I'm not sure we're talking about the necessarily the Maltese terrors with their uh, stained mm, eyes yeah, but. Yeah. Um, but maybe we could say, like, what? When do you flush a nasal lacrimal duct, and, and uh, do you, do you get one of those fancy little uh, catheters to, to do it, or uh, are there um, uh, more uh, practice friendly uh, <laughs> tools that you can use? Um, so there's there's quite a few reasons why you might want to flush a nasal lacrimal duct, actually, um, and it depends on which species you're thinking about. So you could be um, thinking about a horse, um, a rabbit. Um, a dog or or a cat um, they're the main ones that um, I think about flushing nasolacrimal ducts in and generally speaking um, it's the the time when I would reach for that is when you have an epiphora so exactly like you were explaining with the Maltese terrier when you have tear staining or overflow of tears so you need to decide if that is the tear staining is because the eye is painful and there's an overproduction of tears or actually if the nasolacrimal duct is blocked so you do your Schirmer tear test first if your Schirmer tear test is normal but there's still epiphora then you will go on to then investigate whether the nasolacrimal duct is patent or not and the first thing I would probably do is a Jones test so a Jones test is where you put fluorescent on the eye and you wait um, to see if it appears at the nose so if you have a unilateral nasolacrimal duct problem, then you'll have one nair that has fluorescein present and one, the side that's blocked, 
it wouldn't be in cats and brachycephalic dogs um that can be a little bit sometimes tricky or misleading because actually the nasal aqueduct um may open in the mouth especially in brachycephalics where they're very not conformed well um so quite often we open the cat's mouth or the dog's mouth and, and shine the blue light inside just to see if it's gone in there um so if you have a negative jones test and there's no fluorescent in the mouth then that would be an indication to flush the nasal acrimal duct so jones test so this is obviously named after after someone dr jones <laughs> <laughs> excellent I'm, I'm sure i'm sure they're happy this is obviously just a, an animal thing oh i have no idea i should imagine dr jones was probably human um there'll be some clever ophthalmologists out there that can tell us that but um i i'm not sure actually where the origin of jane's test comes I, I, from i had no idea that was actually named uh after after someone i i, I didn't i thought it was just a yeah. lacrimal duct and <laughs> flush it and kerosene comes out of the nose and and there you go so the other thing i guess is um with horses then um we quite often go retrograde so we'd um look for the nasal lacrimal duct opening um at the at the nares and then we'd cannulate that with a dog urinary catheter depending on how big the nose is depends on you know the hole depends on how big the french is um or the gauge of the catheter and then we'd flush retrograde and look for um saline or or sterile water to come out of the eye um everything else we generally go normal grade so cats dogs and rabbits and i would just use um an iv catheter um, and again, choose the size depending on the size of the nasal acrimal duct opening um, and obviously remove the stylet. So you want it to be um, as malleable as, as possible. You don't want the stylet in there causing things to be very rigid. Um, or if you have nasal acrimal duct cannulas, you can you can use one of those alternatively. And if you have a, a blockage or it's not actually working, what, what do you what do you what do you do about that? Um, so I guess it depends on um, what you think might be going on. Um, most of the time here, because we have it, we would CT them and we would do a um, dacryorhinocystography. So we would inject contrast into the, the nasal acrimal duct um, and, and show where it's occluded and see. So you could have a mass within the nose. Um, you could have a foreign body within the lacrimal sac. Um, you could have a straightforward inflammation or dacryocystitis, which is most common in rabbits. Um, and most of the time is due to, to teeth problems in rabbits, actually. Um, so, yeah, there are a few different ways in which in which you can go. But if you're if you have a rabbit with a dacryocystitis, you absolutely need to look in their mouth and, and check out what's going on with their teeth. Um, that's a, one of the, the first things you would do in that species. OK. Thank you very much, um, and uh, and so is there any it, fluorescein wouldn't be irritating in in that in that component, and if there is inflammation, so you so for the most part with with rabbits you'd, you'd look at their teeth, and in other species would you would you give them a bit of time and and repeat that before say advanced imaging yeah so if you sedate them to flush the nasal acrimal duct, and um, it flushes you know if you have an inflammation and it's dacryocystitis and it flushes then i at that point i actually flush um maxitrol um uh, uh, you know half a bottle of maxitrol um down at this at the same time as i've established a, a you know a patent duct um that's 
anti-inflammatory and antibiotic together and then I would continue that for a period of time along with systemic anti-inflammatories and then see them back again um, try to taper off the medication and then see if it returns are nasolacrimal issues quite quite a common thing that you you see um not not massively we see I don't know three or four a year so not not hugely common and do you think that's because people's perception or there there isn't really a problem or most people deal with this and no i think most uh, gps are, are, are comfortable with that and then we tend to get the masses in the nose that you know in dogs that have masses um nasal masses they they tend to present to us so something that that generally doesn't get better with with medical treatment that needs imaging okay well uh, thank you and you think we've uh, we've encapsulated everything I about think nasal so. <laughs> 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 as uh, she's looking at her watch no no, she's no, no i'm not i'm not <laughs> so um so, okay, so the, the third thing um uh, if we if we could uh could, could quiz your your mind uh, about this would be um blindness as a as a presentation mm. that i think happens uh, to to us all you know sudden sudden blind blindness or yeah. apparently allegedly according to the owners you know whatever term that is sudden sudden blindness yeah so, so when these uh when these dogs or or cats um, present to you do you have certain um maybe even even trigger questions that you talk to the owners before you you look at the the animal um yeah they can be really frightening actually because the owners tend to come to you very panicked um and you um as a as a practitioner want to get to the bottom of things quickly um and it it is one of i think the most scary emergencies because you want to act in a timely manner um yet the owner is finding it difficult to take on board what you're saying. Um, so generally speaking, what I try to work out is whether it's a primary eye problem or whether it's a neurological blindness. Um, and so there are various things that we can ask in our history um, with regards to whether um, this has been something that has happened. So usually they present to you because the animal is suddenly blind, but have there been any preceding behavioural things have they bumped into things um previously um do they have polydipsia polyphagia uh, polyuria um those sorts of things can be really helpful to know um and any other medical history on any other drugs um and things like that um and then when i actually examine them um what's really important to know is go through your full ophthalmic examination because you could have a diabetic that presents with cataracts that have progressed extremely quickly that the owner hasn't noticed and they're blind because of the the cataracts have just progressed rapidly um or you could have um something with a sard a sudden acquired retinal degeneration syndrome um so a a daxi that's been pupd for a few days bumped into something last week and presents you suddenly blind has a normal ophthalmic exam and at that point you need to try and determine is this a primary ocular, so a SARD, or is this a neurological? Um, and that would depend on um, how much is in, in need to be invested in spending on financially, but also effort-wise on, on what's happening with that patient. So if it were a primary ocular problem, then we would go down the line of an ERG, so doing a, a flash test of the retina to see if it's functioning properly. If it's functioning properly, then the next step would be an MRI and CSF for example sorry a flash test (laughs) yeah so that's how i describe it um which is not very scientific but essentially an erg is 
where you flash a specific strength of light um at the eye this can be done conscious sedated or anesthetized generally speaking here we do it sedated or anesthetized just because it gives you um a a lot of information so a little bit like um when i was taught about it as a student um frying eggs and um uh bombing plane noises where the neurology do the muscle stimulation EMGs Mm -hmm. um so it's a little bit like that in that um you put electrodes on the dog's head and a contact lens on the cornea which also has an electrode then you flash um a light into the eye a very specific light on a machine and then it gives you the electrical reading so it tells you if the retina is working properly and if that is working properly then you think okay it needs to go more down the neurological route or if it's a flat line so there's no response of the retinal cells then um we're quite happy to say that that's a primary retinal problem and as you divide up retinal problems can they see the the same issues as uh, everywhere else can it be in you know inflammation infection neoplasia it's a really good question that's an area that's not very well described in veterinary medicine a a retinal problem so there are in humans there are a variety of different um retinal diseases um and we're trying now to sort of tease that out within veterinary species but it's becoming it's a little bit challenging so there is SARDS which is sudden acquired retinal degeneration syndrome this is linked occasionally with signs of Cushing's um and so you may have um, a Cushingoid patient with all the clinical history and that responds to um, that their uh, systemic signs respond to treatment for that or they'll have sex hormone abnormalities. Um, so not just um, the traditional presentation of, of Cushing's. Um, and this is or, or you can have SARDs without any of the systemic signs as well. Um, and then, um, generally speaking, we wait to see if those signs resolve. And if they don't, then we treat them for their systemic signs. But the eyesight will never return, which is very sad. Then we have things like immune-mediated retinopathy, where some people um, report response to high doses of steroids as soon as the patient goes blind um, and have had some regained vision Um, And then you have cancer-associated retinopathy, which is extrapolated from people, where you have um, attack, uh, an immune attack of the retinal cells um, due to a cancer process elsewhere in the body. It's not very well described in in animals, but they're the the sort of three categories that we think about. Um, And generally speaking, prognosis for vision is is not very good when when we have that. Are these things not necessarily well described because we don't necessarily look uh, histologically at yeah. eyes after yeah. after these these guys have, have sadly passed on for whatever yeah. cause? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point, and uh, and I think that's probably one of the main reasons why we don't have those categories well defined in in veterinary species. I, d- I think it, it's as far as like the investigations in people or treatments in people. I imagine they're actually quite specific and maybe quite difficult to achieve in yeah in, in animals. Yeah, is, is yeah. That... I think there's differences there as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you can have let's say a sudden acquired like retinal degeneration. Mm-hmm. So, so, how about the the attachment of the of the retina would that can they present as, as sudden blindness yeah absolutely as well? so you can have um retinal detachments 
um, for example, due to hypertension. So a, a common cat presentation would be bilateral retinal detachment and hemorrhage um, due to systemic hypertension. Um, you can also have optic nerve swelling or optic neuritis, um, which can be everything else looks completely normal. And then you get this bulging, like we talked about last week, this bulging of the optic nerve heads and hemorrhage of the optic nerve heads. And that's generally, um, we immunosuppress our patients to have that. Or you could have um, an MUE or MUO, um, so a neurological meningitis of unknown origin, um, in which we get the diagnosis through MRI and CSF tap. And again, we immunosuppress those patients. Can, can animals have a traumatic detachment? Um, yes, I have seen that. Um, and they can also get um, detachments because they have an abnormal vitreous, which is something not we don't know an awful lot about. But breeds, for example, Shih Tzus um, and Italian Greyhounds have this um, vitreous, which isn't as jelly as firm as in other patients and is more liquid and then we get this retinal detachment and the liquid vitreous then goes behind the retina and pulls the rest of it off so um that's true and also we can have it as a complication of cataract surgery as well a retinal detachment or any penetrating injury into the eye so any acute decompensation in pressure um, may also lead to a retinal detachment and when you're assessing so if we have a sudden onset blindness and we've we've excluded the um the lens as a as an issue in, in itself mm-hmm. so we think it's something to do with the retina um so whether there's hemorrhage there so the hypertensive cats mm-hmm. obviously controlling their blood pressure mm-hmm. is important but is there very much a um a not necessarily a stepwise approach but an approach do you say like well these are the things we need to be concerned about and treat urgently mm-hmm. whereas the other things un- unfortunately you know it doesn't you know we don't know whether uh, the intervention is is helpful yeah so um i think with regards to the sards and immune mediated retinopathies there's no clear evidence to say that treatment with immunosuppression will help regain vision um and i certainly don't immunosuppress my uh patients because i don't feel the evidence is strong enough for that um, with regards to hypertension, um, absolutely treat the underlying cause. So the sooner you get the blood pressure back to normal, the sooner the retina will re- reattach. Um, there are such retinal detachments that are immune mediated. So in dogs, immune mediated retinal detachment is reported. And so the sooner you can start steroids, the better. And then you can have systemic disease, which causes exudative retinal detachment in which you need to find and treat the underlying cause as soon as possible. Okay. And uh, and I know it's um, going going back a step. I know it might sound a bit strange, but I think like in dogs, you can say whether a dog is blind or not because mm. they tend to follow you around, maybe with their eyes, or they normally interact. But sometimes with cats, I think it's I personally think it's quite difficult yeah. to know can they see because they don't necessarily you know are bothered if you drop a pen in mm-hmm, front of mm-hmm. them or. A cotton ball. So, so, do you have any, any, any tricks or tips for for assessing? No, I totally agree with you. Cats are really, really hard. I've actually had owners that do not believe me when I tell them that their cat's blind, and the only reason I know the cat's blind is because there's not a single retinal blood vessel at all present in that cat's retina. Um, so, a really 
well, not not common, but cases that I have seen complete retinal atrophy in cats due to enrofloxacin, for example, um, they come to me a, a few months or, or years later and um, the retina is, um, there's literally not a single blood vessel. It's hyperreflective, completely atrophied and the cat is completely fine at home it still goes outside it still brings mice in the owners do not believe me that their cat's blind and they're coming because it has i know a dilated pupils and more shiny um to petal reflection when they take a picture of the cat um and i'm like well your cat can't actually see anything i would suggest you keep it inside and they just don't believe me so i don't think there's any good way that we've managed to work out yet how vision testing in in cats and also vision testing in dogs is is not great i mean we do maze test them but um i think we've got a lot of scope of improvement to to learn how to test vision in our veterinary patients better so an excellent point about uh emrefloxacin causing causing blindness in in cats and that's a a a paper quite a like a decade ago i'd imagine or even even longer about that you you finding um any other fluoroquinolones causing this problem in in cats um there are some or there is some chatter around marbofloxacin at the moment i don't think there's any hard and fast evidence um for it certainly not that i remember off the top of my head um and there's no other one has been implicated but um there is a little bit of chatter around marbofloxacin so there's another good reason why we should be a bit cautious Mm. on fluoroquinolones and and maybe uh not causing blindness in our feline friends yeah i mean sometimes you know you might have a culture and you can't avoid it but and that's fine um but if we can avoid it i think for me personally having seen the effects it would be better yeah Okay, so so maybe lastly, maybe even penultimately, uh, you know, that I, I thought of something else to actually ask you <laughs> as well. But uh, dealing with with foreign bodies in 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 eyes themselves, so if you have a, a corneal foreign body, or or maybe even uh, in the in the third eyelid, mm-hmm. um, do you, do you have any any tips or tricks of how to remove these uh, these items yeah. or even identification? Do, do yeah, sometimes... it can be really hard. Um, I actually find that sometimes taking a picture of the eye can be really helpful and you can zoom in because the patient then isn't moving and you can analyse the picture. And now with our smartphones having such good quality, I think um, that that can be really helpful. Um, We see all sorts of foreign bodies from thorns um, and uh, grass seeds behind the third eyelid to bits of metal I've had. and other ones, little seed pods, which are circular, and they can look a little bit like a desmetaseal um, because when you stain the eye, the, the centre circle doesn't uptake stain, and that can be really confusing. And actually, recently, I took a dog to theatre thinking it was a desmetaseal and it was one of these foreign bodies, and I removed it, and it was very deep, so I still needed to graft, but um, I was caught out by it recently. Um, but you can remove superficial foreign bodies with a cyto brush or the dental flossing brush, like we talked about before. Just numb the cornea and gently try and pick up the corner with one of the corners of the or one of the bristles of the brush. It can be challenging to work out if the foreign body is penetrating all the way. So then I tend to look for signs of uveitis or inflammation inside the eye. If it's inflammation inside the eye, um, blood or meiosis or um 
hypopian then I think okay this is penetrating and and that's going to need some stitches and things but if the eye looks quiet otherwise and you think it's superficial then you can certainly try to remove it one of those brushes is probably the safest way to do that would, would forceps to, to grab things or are they just too too cumbersome to grab something so small? The problem with forceps is that you are at risk of pushing um, a, a triangular or cy- cylindrical foreign body into the eye. So if you're having trouble and, and it's um, looks like you look like you want to grab it, actually it's better to use a hypodermic needle um, and just um, gently sort of coax the foreign body out that way rather than trying to grab it because as i said before you're at risk of pushing it all the way into the eye yeah. um, i'd imagine if you were getting a hypodermic needle in front of uh, an animal's eye the animal would be anesthetized or sedated yeah yeah that's yeah. usually helpful because most of the time it's boisterous uh, young dogs with things in in their eyes so yeah i think it would be helpful to give some form of at least sedation in, in that situation and those uh side brushes the same thing or, or can people use their as you said the in the the uh the, the little dental brushes yeah that, that we yeah use? they're just slightly less stiff so you might might not you might not get good purchase on the corner of the foreign body but that's certainly a safe way to try excellent Excellent. So, you, see, the, the the last thing, and it would just be, be briefly that I thought about it, is, is just really to do with with dry eye because mm. I thought that's actually quite a quite a common common mm-hmm. thing. And I just just wondering how if if there are any different treatments or we're still going for uh, topical cyclosporin. Um, that's a really good question. Um, so it's really common. We diagnose it quite commonly here. All patients come already diagnosed and, and vets are really struggling to to, tr- to treat them um i would say it's important not to ch- chase the schirmetier test reading um so if you have overall improvement in clinical signs of that patient but the schirmetier test reading is still low definitely don't stop whatever you were doing so if that's flushing lubricant and optimune then keep going because that dog's far more comfortable there's less redness etc etc so it is important to do schirmetier tests but don't let the owner get carried away with being fanatical about the numbers um some owners are so committed these days that they get really really involved and and they're like well the schirmer's less than it was before and actually if the dog's clinically doing better then that's a good result um if Optimune or uh, topical cyclosporin is um, not helping, the dog's still very uncomfortable, clinical signs are bad, then you can go off license and use tacrolimus. Um, we import this um, from, from the States or, or Germany or South Africa um, and you'll need a special treatment license to order it for that particular patient. Um, but actually um, in some dogs that has helped um, just because that's a slightly different mechanism mechanism of action so um just that straight swap really does help with tear readings and have you ever done a parotid duct transposition yeah we've done a few um they come with their risks and complications but i certainly um talk to owners about it um it's certainly not a quick fix they'll definitely need drops and medication long term still but um, we have had some good results with parotid duct transpositions in comfort levels along with complementary um, treatments as well so uh, sorry I should have said so that's when you're moving the the emptying the the the, the duct of the parotid 
gland yep. to the to the actual the op. conjunctival fornix. Yeah. So instead of going to the mouth, um, you just redirect it to the to the eye. It causes a lot of mineral deposition in the cornea um, because obviously saliva is not the same as tears. But um, as I said, with complementary optimune and, and lubricant, we can get some good results. It's not a case where. Um, when you do the protoduct transposition, no more topical medication is required, which is quite often owners get disappointed when you tell them that it's not going to fix it like that. Um, but yeah, it can be helpful. And before before I, uh, I, I let you go, I've taken up far too much of your uh, for your time this week. But before I let you go, as far as like lubrication goes for the eye, do, do you have like, like go to things, or do you think that everything out on the market is is the same? And I think it's all much of a muchness. Um, I will just say that preservative on the eye um, is really important to think about so if you have a patient with dry eye and you're using a few different medications that have preservative in then it's important to try and reduce the amount of of preservative so giving um preservative more than sort of five six times a day can actually cause inflammation to the surface of the eye um and so one of those things which you could do is use a preservative free lubricant um with regards to what exactly that is, um, I don't particularly mind. Um, there are pros and cons to all of them, but um, just bearing in mind that preservative aspect um, to things, that's all I would say about lubricants. Well, that's excellent. And, and hopefully we can uh, preserve you and uh, and uh, get you to, to come back at, a, at another time. And, and thank you so much, Charlotte, for, for your time and, and little little tips about certain things. So we'll wrap it up there. And, and thank you guys for, for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button and so you can get all the podcasts uh, downloaded to your uh, generic fruit-based device um, so you don't have to worry about missing a pod. So if you, if you could leave us a review uh, on iTunes, that would be great. Um, and we'll put some show notes on show notes on the RVC pages so just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine and it should be the top of the tree so don't forget if you have any comments or suggestions on the podcast please get in touch you can either email me at dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet me at Don Barfield so thank you very much for listening until next time bye bye and thank you Charlotte pleasure so um